free. Got it turned on. Lord, we pray that we might hear only your voice, be obedient only to your voice, and that your words may enter into our heart and soul in Jesus' name. Amen. So late one night, there was a knock at the door where Jesus was staying in Jerusalem. Jesus goes to the door and opens it. Hello, yes, can I help you? <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's a man standing there with a hood over his cloak. And, uh, yeah, my name's Nicodemus. Uh, do you mind if we step inside for a moment? It's, it's a little chilly out here. I'd like to talk to you. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a devout religious scholar, very serious of, of his faith, a leader in the community, quite a, a high-profile person. And for someone like him to be seen hanging out with Jesus or, or even speaking with this fellow from Nazareth who had just caused uh, a not-so-small disturbance in the temple, well, that would just give the wrong impression. So perhaps it was cold outside, but more importantly, it was dark when Nicodemus arrived. We're told people love darkness and the shadows because darkness and shadows hide, they conceal. Jesus, as we know, was betrayed, arrested, and tried in the darkness. The darkness always tries to extinguish the light. But this is more than just a physical darkness. The gospel writer John loves to use symbolism, and the tension between dark and light is one of the most prominent uh, images in, in his gospel. He speaks of darkness nine times and of light 24 times in his gospel. Uh, Nicodemus uh, may have been from the upper class serious folks, but he was genuine and serious about his faith hoping and longing for the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the, the consolation of Israel, someone who would come and redeem Israel. And so he was not here that night to trap Jesus, as many of the Pharisees were wont to do. He was seeking something, though he knows not exactly what. Light, perhaps. He says, Rabbi, we, we know you're a teacher straight from God. For, for no one can do all this God-pointing, all these God-revealing acts that you do, unless God were in on it. Nicodemus had, had heard about Jesus, maybe had even seen some of the signs and wonders, been present for some of the miracles. And if God were not with Jesus, there's no way he knows, there's no way that he could be doing such things. But there had been so many false messiahs. So many false hopes. So many dashed expectations over the decades and centuries. What is one to think? Is this one really the one that the prophets had spoken about? Jesus says, you're absolutely right. Take it from me. Unless a person is born from above, it is not possible to see what I am pointing to. It's not possible for them to see the kingdom of God. Notice, though, that Nicodemus doesn't actually ask a question, but Jesus gives him an answer anyways. Well, he sort of gives an answer. He gives what I call a Jesus answer, which is really a question in the form of an answer in response, not to a question asked, but to the question Jesus felt ought to be asked. 
Jesus sort of plays Jeopardy, right? He doesn't, he doesn't phrase things in the form of an answer. He phrases them in the form of a question. It's a rhetorical device. He says, you're right, my friend. Unless you are born from above, you will not see the kingdom of God. Now, aside from the fact that Jesus clearly takes this conversation in a totally different direction from where Nicodemus was probably assuming it was going to go, Jesus intentionally is speaking with some ambiguity. Jesus uses this word, in the Greek it's anathen, which can mean either again or above. If I say to you, if you want to get anywhere in this world, you need a coach, what do you immediately think of? You think of hockey, you think of a coach, you need a guide, right? Absolutely. But if I said that line to you in, say, the 1700s or 1800s in England, and I said to you, if you want to go anywhere in this world, you need a coach, what would you think? Yeah, a horse and buggy sort of thing, right? Context is important here. It can mean either one. If you want to get anywhere in this world, you need a coach. If it was a life seminar, you would think life coach. If we're standing at a bus station, you would think a bus coach. Jesus says, you must be born again. He says, you must be born from above. Well, which did he really mean? It's quite probable that he meant both, but Nicodemus zeroes in on the word again. What, is, what do you mean? Hang on, Jesus. What do you mean you need to be born again? I don't understand. How can someone be born if they're already if they've already been born, they're grown up. I mean, you can't re-enter your mother's womb and be born again. What, what, what are you saying with this born again talk? Is, tell me more about that. Now, I don't think Nicodemus is being intentionally obtuse. I think he's trying to wrap his mind around a concept relating to God and his kingdom that he's never heard before. If Jesus had talked to Nicodemus about with words like redemption, rescue, deliverance, salvation, obedience to the law, it all would have been fine. Those are all categories in, in Nicodemus's view of the world. Those are all world, words that fit into his box of understanding God and his kingdom. It fits within a category that he could figure out, and they could have built on common ground. But Jesus is not wanting to build just on the old ideas of God and the kingdom. His teaching is about more than the law and the prophets and the temple and feasts. Jesus is wanting to say something different. He says, you must be born again. You must be born anew. You must be born from above. Jesus says, no, 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 you're not, you're not listening. You're, not, you're, you're, you're missing the point. Let, let me see if I can see the, say this differently. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the waters of creation, the invisible moving the visible, baptism into new life, unless you, unless you enter into that, unless your spirit's given birth by spirit, then you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus here is beckoning back to deeply into an old image of creation. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters of the deep in the darkness. Word and Spirit bringing forth life. Nicodemus, a scholar of the prophets and, and the law, might have even thought of a, of a passage from, from the prophet Ezekiel. 
who, who God spoke through when he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Water and spirit are symbols of new, of a clean life, of a heart after God sort of life. I think, though, Jesus realizes that what he is throwing out there, Nicodemus is just not catching. And so he tries a third time with a slightly different metaphor. He says, okay, maybe this would help. Imagine you're looking at a baby, at at something flesh, and it's just that. It's a body. It's a baby. You can look at it and touch it. But the person who takes shape within is formed by something you, you can't see and you can't touch. The, the body within is, is, is formed by the spirit and becomes a living spirit. In other words, that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And, and flesh and spirit are not two separate things. That's dualism. But, but two parts which make up one whole. We are not just physical beings. There's something else to us. There's something intangible, woven within us. Our spirit, our soul, our heart. Call it what you want. And Jesus says, but just as flesh gives birth to flesh, the physical to the physical, your spirit needs to be given life. And that life comes from the spirit, the breath of God. So Jesus goes on and says, so, so don't be surprised when I tell you that you need to be born from above. You need to be born from the Spirit who is above the world, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough how the wind blows this way and, and that way. You hear it rustling in the trees and you have no idea where it came from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone who's born from above by the wind of God, the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God. Now, you would think that explanation would have cleared everything up, right? This is all clear to you now. I know my Jesus' words, my profound explanation has has, uh, allows you now to go and explain to your neighbor what all this means to be born again. I get that. But poor Nicodemus isn't there with us yet. Nicodemus, by this point, must be feeling a bit bewildered and a bit put off because he He understands himself. He sees himself to be a fairly bright guy. He's a Pharisee, after all. He's a teacher of Israel. He's studied the scriptures. But something is not connecting for him yet. And so Nicodemus says, I I still don't get this. What do you mean? How how does this happen? And so Jesus, Jesus says, Brother, you're a respected teacher in Israel and you don't get these basic things? Now Jesus is let's be honest, sounding a little frustrated at this point. What Jesus understands to be a fairly basic concept, this poor man is just not grasping. Now, any of us who is a parent or a teacher or has been a coach in Little League gets this idea of frustration, right? You're trying your best to explain something simple. How to hit a ball. How to solve a math problem. How to flush a toilet. It should be dead simple. And no matter how hard you try to explain it, it is just not getting through. So Jesus takes a deep breath. And he tries yet again to explain what he is talking about. 
He says, okay, Nicodemus, listen carefully. I'm speaking sober truth to you. This isn't confusing. I speak only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I've seen with my own eyes. There's no second hand here. There's no hearsay. Yet instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you're, you, you're procrastinating with question after question. If I tell you things that are plain, it's the hand before your face, and you don't believe me, then what is what use is there of me telling you of heavenly things, of the things that you can't see, the things of God? And here, Jesus and John introduce another recurring theme or image in his gospel. We have the idea of light and darkness, but we also have the seeing and not seeing. The being physically able to see, but being spiritually blind. It takes faith, you see, to see the things of the Spirit, to really see the kingdom of God. And that faith comes only through spiritual birth, which is, in the end, a gift from God. And what is seen will lead you to a life that is truly life, both now and in the time to come. Jesus is now in full kingdom-revealing mode. He has, it seems, decided to give up on trying to bring Nicodemus along with him in this explanation, and he just goes for it. He says, no one has ever gone up into the presence of God except for the one who came down from the presence, the Son of Man. Now, later on, Nicodemus and John and the rest of us will come to understand that he's speaking about himself here, but in the moment that he speaks this, this must have just been more mud in Nicodemus's eye. But Jesus does throw Nicodemus a little bit of a bone. He throws him a lifeline. He, he connects what he's saying, uh, the salvation of life in the kingdom, with saving of a life that he knows from scripture. And so he says, look, Nicodemus, it's the same as when Moses, remember when Moses lifted up the servant in the, de- uh, the serpent in the desert so that people could, could have something to see and believe in? It is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And everyone who looks upon him, trusting and expectantly, will gain a real life, will gain eternal life. Uh, that, he's saying that which was killing them the serpents in the, de- in the desert, if you remember the story from Exodus, when it is high and lifted up, becomes, by God's grace, the very thing that saves them when they see it. The snakes were killing the people. But the snake is put on a stick and lifted up, and looking upon the snake, that which kills now brings life. Well, what kills us? What kills humanity? What ends our life? Not death specifically, but what? three-letter word, sin. At the cross, Jesus becomes sin for us. At the cross, Jesus becomes the serpent. Jesus takes on the very nature of man, takes all our sin upon himself, becomes sin itself, and then he is high and lifted up upon a pole, upon the cursed tree, and when we look upon it, when by the spirit that is living within us, we can actually see him hanging there, we are saved. Whoever believes in him, whoever sees him, will have eternal life. Life that is truly life. They will see the kingdom of God and live a kingdom life. For when we look up and see, 
we no longer see death or sin. We can see beyond that, and we see the great love of God with which he has loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now this passage is central to our faith. So hear it again, this time from a different translation. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his Son, his one and only Son, and this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. But believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go through all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to set the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without even knowing it. And why? Because that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. Now, to save someone means to pull that person out of danger so that he or she will not be hurt or their life will not be lost. But to save means much more than that. John Vanier writes this, To save means to liberate. To liberate from oppression or to open the doors for a prisoner and to let the prisoner go free. It means to heal, to make whole. Jesus came to save us from all those fears that close us up in ourselves. He came to liberate us and to open us up to love. He came to give us the very life of God so that it may flow in us and through us. It flows in us because Jesus was lifted up on the cross, lifted up in his resurrection, and lifted up in the glory of the Father. Now hopefully that description of John Vanier sounds a little bit familiar to you Because that's exactly what Todd and I were emphasizing in the Lenten series. In what the cross did. It sets free. It liberates. It heals. It delivers. It gives us new life. It does all these things. This teaching of Jesus is beautiful and it's hopeful and it's filled with freedom and light and life. And Jesus tells us clearly how much He loves this world of his. Despite the sin and the darkness in it, he loves it. Because sin and darkness have no chance against the light and the love that God has for this world. And yet, Jesus goes on and says this. And yet, this is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing painful exposure. 
But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work that it is. Yes, there is judgment, but there is not condemnation, says Jesus. Judgment is brought about by our own willful blindness, our own will of unwillingness not to be born again or born from above. We delude ourselves, fearing that the light is going to condemn us rather than redeem us, rather than seeing that the light is exactly what we need to expose so that we can see the kingdom of God and receive the love and the grace of our King. But this fearing of light and choosing, like Nicodemus, to hide in the darkness and to walk in the shadows and to live in the shadows, is not just a commentary on the world out there. That makes us feel safe and secure. It's not just for those who don't believe. It is also a reality and a commentary for those of us in the church. To those of us who do believe, those who have been born from above, those who have received the spirit of Pentecost and yet still live in the shadows and in darkness. I hear it all the time from Christians of different denominations. It doesn't matter the denomination. It doesn't matter if they're pastors or lay people. It doesn't matter. It's a way of viewing the world as a place of darkness. A way of viewing the world as a place not loved by Jesus, not filled by his light, but a place first and foremost filled with darkness and shadows, a godless place. It's a negative way of seeing the world, that the world is not a place to be lived in and enjoyed with beauty, but it's a place to be feared. We have a theology so often that sees the world as a dark and dangerous place. We reflect this way of seeing the world in the way we talk. Oh, the culture's getting worse. It was much better before. Oh, it's becoming more sinful. There's less Christians in the world. It's a dark and dangerous place out there. Or by the way we cloister ourselves off and create a Christian subculture. As if that's going to protect us in the light. That is darkness. Christian art, Christian music, Christian books, Christian movie, Christian schools. That's darkness that we're living in. Even in the way we pray for others. If the first thing we see is darkness and shadows, the evil one, the devil is having his way in the world with this person or with that group of people, there's darkness over the North Shore. How often I've heard that. And why? Because we still live in the dark place, just like Nicodemus. We see more shadow than we see light. We've come to believe that the Satan is just as powerful as Jesus and that the battle is still raging on as if the cross did not finish the work. We have a faith that believes that that fight is still going on, that the cross was not satisfactory. Whenever we cloister ourselves off, whenever the first thing we see is evil or darkness or shadows in the world, we're saying, Jesus, your cross was insufficient. It's a way of living in the darkness, in the shadows. It's a way of believing that Jesus doesn't actually love the world that he made. 
St. Paul comments on this same reality. This isn't just an issue for us 2,000 years later. The same reality was in the church then. And so in his letter to the Romans, he's telling them, stop it, you guys. He says, we've been given the spirit of freedom, not of slavery. We've been given a spirit of hope, not of fear. We've been given a spirit of light, not of darkness. We've been given a spirit of life, not death. We've been given the spirit of adoption, not judgment. Listen to what Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans, verses 12 and following. He says this, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, not not to live according to the flesh. He's using the same language of of John chapter 3. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into darkness and shadows. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters of God by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that lives within us that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. And if we're heirs of God, then we're fellow heirs with Christ. Do you see the hope in this, the light in this, the goodness in this, the beauty in this? God loves the world. He sees in it beauty and worthiness in every single aspect of the world, in every single person. He sees light and beauty and hope and goodness. Now sure, this idea of being born again has been misused and abused by some. And so this teaching of Jesus has become tainted to some of us. To say to someone, to ask someone if they are born-again Christian is a redundant question. It's asking them if they're a Christian Christian. If you are born again, you are a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're born again. As soon as you say, I believe in Jesus, my, I, I acknowledge the cross, I believe in it. Some of the, the, the words from, from that, that, that Bart's song was talking about this, I believe in the cross, I believe in the resurrection. As soon as you do that, you are born again. Your spirit has been given birth by the Spirit of God. And yeah, John 3.16 has perhaps lost some of its punch because it's been made cliche by the cardboard signs and football end zones. But these two factors can in no way, and nor, nor ought they take away from the stunning claim that is being made as Jesus talks to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him. Whoever sees him. Whoever is born from above. Whoever enters out of darkness into the light. Whoever has been born of water and the spirit. Whoever feels the wind of God upon their face. Should not perish. But have a life that is truly life. Lord God on this Sunday after Pentecost. The day that you sent forth this spirit. The same spirit that hovered over the darkness in creation. The same spirit that guided the prophets. The same spirit that you promised us. The same spirit that descended upon you at your baptism. That this spirit would give life to the spirit within us. 
that not only would we be born again, but that we would be people of the light, willing to come out of the darkness, that we would be a light on a hill, not cloistering ourselves off from the rest of the world, not hiding in the shadows, not putting a bushel over us to protect us, but that we would be a light in the darkness. For the darkness cannot stand the presence of light, and it will flee. Sin cannot stand the presence of grace, and it will flee. Evil cannot stand the presence of the goodness of Christ, as represented by us, and it will flee. Lord, let us be born again, and let us be light, not hiding in fear in the shadows. In Jesus' name, amen.